0: Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray as we stand. Father, what a wonderful truth that all of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior and Lord can say. We were a long way from you, but your love does not let us go. Your love reaches out to us. You call us with warnings and, uh, with kind promises. And with words of grace, as well as words of challenge. So, Father, wherever we are this evening, would your word do its work, please? Expose our hearts to the comfort we need, to the challenge that we need. Expose our hearts so that we love you and give ourselves to serving you. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please, you take a seat. Hebrews 4. We're largely thinking then this evening about rest. Now, rest, that's a nice word, isn't it? Isn't that a nice word? So if someone said to you, um, oh, what have you done this weekend? And you said, oh, not much. Just rested. They're going to say to you, oh, nice. <laughs> nice, that sounds nice. Uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I just need a little bit of a rest. Mmm. Mmm, rest. Oh, we're on holiday next week. Yeah, yeah, where are you going? Well, you know, we're off to Portugal, but really what I'm looking forward to is sitting around and having a... Rest. It's a nice word, isn't it? And The only thing that really challenges it are three little words, possibly, possibly. Time for bed is right up there, as far as I can tell. But they're quite related, aren't they? Rest. It's a lovely word, rest. But we're not very good at it, apparently. was an article, I don't know if you saw it, in the paper last week in The Times. Uh, why are we all so tired all the time? And it's a sort of article that you may read, it's perfectly wide awake, and by the time you get to the end of it, you do feel quite tired. Uh, but the central premise was this, that actually there's a sense of fatigue that is becoming somewhat epidemic. Particularly in cities in the UK. And it's not a lack of sleep, because if you get seven hours sleep a night, that's fine. Really. Apparently. Uh, some of you find that hard to believe, I know, and some of you think, if only I could have seven hours, I'd be fine. But apparently, if you get seven hours, that's great. It's not a lack of sleep that's the problem, but the fact that we're overstimulated. So the phenomenon is, phenomenon is, we're tired but wired. So you can get seven, eight hours sleep a night, but if, as most people commonly are, uh, last thing at night, ten, eleven o'clock, uh, out comes the phone. You just check a few little, a uh, few little emails. You just, you're hitting your brain with drugs you're having a little hit so it's quite addictive to do such a thing if you're the sort of person whenever you go to the loo you have to get your phone out and check out what your status on facebook or something like that and what everyone else is up to yes nervous laughter i know that sort of <laughs> laughter that's nervous laughter yes many of you but if you have, it's just relentless we're bombarding our brains relentlessly there's no pause in the day and so we're overstimulated and just tired a little bit so they interviewed one uh, uh, doctor, physiologist, who runs a clinic uh, at London Hospital. She put it this way. We're afraid to stop and do nothing because we feel this constant need to be in doing mode. But we underestimate just how much mental effort is involved when our brain is processing information all the time, all the time. And so we constantly feel the need to just be in touch. We're not at work. But other people at work, what are they doing? Are they doing stuff? Should I be there? Am I missing out? Maybe I'll just check in. All is well. Or just socially, what's everyone else doing? Are people doing things? I'm not out there. Are people out there? What am I missing? Oh dear. Actually, this is sort of restlessness in modern culture that constantly has to engage with stuff the whole time in a fairly bouncy, superficial fashion, and it's exhausting. We're restless. Now, Hebrews 4 is very clear that God God offers us rest. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now, biblically, rest is a rich theological word. I'd say, if I was trying to be simple, it's a fundamental trust in God that leads to celebrate him. And this is trying to be really simple and bring it all together. We're going to unpick it, actually, as the evening goes on. But it's a fundamental trust in God that leads to celebrate him. It's not merely the absence of work, far more than that, but trusting in the Lord's And celebrating who he is and what he's done. Now look, in this passage tonight, I'm going to try and keep it simple. There are four main ways that the word rest gets used. Let me just throw them at you to begin with and hopefully make it very simple and clear when we go on. I think there's four main senses of it or or four main historical points when the Bible is talking of rest. Let me throw them out for you. So first, for example, you get in verse 6. The Israelites in the Old Testament, Exodus, they're rescued from slavery. They wander through the wilderness. And then they enter the promised land where in the promised land they're promised rest. So in the book of Joshua, they enter Canaan and they're promised that there they will find rest. That is, it'll be a wonderful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. There'll be productivity. uh, There'll be fulfillment of God's promises there. So that's the first sense in history. Second sense uh, the quote from Psalm 95, which comes up uh, a number of times in the passage today. Uh, Do not harden your hearts. After the Israelites had entered the promised land, God says to them, oh, there's another rest still to come. Not just the rest of being in this wonderful land, but a far more fundamental rest. It'll be a bit like my rest, says, Gen- says God, of Genesis 2, when I finished my work and rested not that God was tired and needed a cup of tea and putting his feet up, but that he had completed all that he set out to do. Okay. One, you'll enter the promised land of Canaan. Two, there'll be a point in, in history when you will completely cease your labours and merely celebrate who I am. Okay. That's back in the Old Testament. And then there are two senses in which is used or applied for us as Christians. Uh, so first, Christians can enter rest now by trusting the promises of the gospel. So you see it in verse 3, for example. Now we who have believed, past tense, enter that rest. So when you become a Christian, you rest. Come back to that. And then the fourth and last, one day we'll enter the promised land of heaven. A physical place of wonderful milk and honey, prosperity, fertility, all is well wonderful in glory and that is the one that the author is primarily concerned about so when he says chapter 4 verse 1 the promise of entering his rest still stands that is you can still go to heaven chapter 4 verse 11 let us make every effort to enter that rest get into heaven okay four main sentences we'll work through them and hopefully it'll be very straightforward but let's say chapter 4 verse 1 is the headline it picks up from last time the christian life is like being on a journey towards the promised land of heaven. If you were here last time, the writer started teaching us what Psalm 95 means, and last week it was a warning. Here he's still talking about Psalm 95, but it's a bit more positive. There's both warning but also hope. Because chapter 4, verse 1 is positive. You can enter his rest. The promise of entering God's eternal rest is open to you and me. Don't miss out, is what he says. Okay, three things, three things, they're on the sheet, let's work through them as as the text breaks down a little bit like this. So first, you you enter rest now, by faith, verses 2 and 3. Then we will Sabbath then, like God, verses 4 to 10. And then finally, it's better to be naked now than uncovered then. And we'll all enjoy that very much, verse 11 to 13. Okay, those are the three. Let's work through them then. Uh, First then, uh, verses 2 to 3, you enter rest now... By faith. Chapter 4, verse 2. Well, let me read it from verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short. Get to heaven. Will you get to heaven, is his point. Verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Okay. So the writer is drawing a parallel between us, if you're a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, and those people thousands of years earlier who didn't go into the promised land, who were in Canaan, excuse me, who were in the wilderness and didn't trust God's promise. So there's the comparison. Both us today... And the Israelites back then were given a promise. What will we do with it? That's tangent, but that's quite an important principle. Whenever you read the Old Testament, they had the gospel message preached to them. Very striking, isn't it? Verse 2. We also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did back in the Old Testament. Very striking. But the important point is this. The Israelites were given a promise, but failed to believe it. What will you do? Forgive me if you've heard this. But what was the promise they were given? Back in Numbers chapter 14, uh, this is sort of extra bonus material. Uh, Back in Numbers 14, do you remember the story or do you know the story at all? God says, okay, off you go. Go into the land of Canaan and take it. There are a few soldiers there, but you'll defeat them because I am with you. Go. And the Israelites say, great. But they're really big and scary. And so we're not going to go. Because we're scared. Sorry about that. And God says, no, look, I am with you. I promise you'll be successful. And they say no. So the point here, as as the writer puts it, uh, second half of verse three, the message they heard, God saying, go into the land, I am with you, you will succeed. The promise they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it didn't combine it with faith. In the same way, what are you going to do? So verse 2, we also have had the gospel preached to us. What will you do? That's his question. What will you do with the word of promise that is preached to you? Will you receive it with faith? When God says, if you trust in my son Jesus Christ, I'll take you to the promised land of heaven. What do you do with that? What will you do with God's word of promise? That's the question. Back then they said, well, well, we know you're God, but that sounds quite risky. And I don't like taking risks, so no. And you know what, it's very easy here here and now to say, well, okay, I like Jesus, and I kind of like following him, but to really trust him? That just sounds risky. And so I'm not so sure I want to do that wholeheartedly. So, no. And that's the temptation. To not trust him. Question, what will you do with the word of promise? If you trust it, you enter rest. Verse 3, now we who have believed enter rest just as God said. Let me try to explain this simply. Rest and rest for the Christian. Ultimately, rest is the promised land. Heaven. Glory, call it what you will. But when you trust the promise of God today, you enter rest. That is, you realise, it's not my efforts that will get me into heaven. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. So I don't have to try and be a religious superhero. You rest I know that God delights in me, so I don't have to pursue approval in every other thing in my life. It doesn't matter if my career doesn't go so well. God still loves me. I don't have to be on my phone 24-7, finding out what's going on. I can rest. So you enter rest now by trusting the promise that's consummated in heaven. Well, let me try and put it this way. Uh, I don't know if many would have read a children's book, a series of children's books by a chap called George MacDonald, um, uh, early 20th century. George MacDonald was a sort of generation above C.S. Lewis and encouraged him to write theological stories like Narnia uh, to convey biblical truth. And George MacDonald did that, and he writes good children's stories. Don't read his adult theology; it's not so clever. Okay, just tangent. Not so good, but his children's stories are quite good. Uh, and so the best one in his series of uh, called "The Princess and Curdie" and "The Princess and the Goblins." Uh, the Princess and the Goblins is a terrific little book to read to six, seven-year-old, eight-year-old boys. They'll love it. The hero of the book is a little boy called Curdy. Odd name, run with it. Curdie's dad is a miner, and so Curdie's quite good at digging with tools. Now, in the book, the princess of the land in which he lives, Irene, has been captured by the evil goblins and dragged underground. So Cody goes to rescue her. Now, at one point, he knows he can hear the goblins around him. He's sort of chipping away with his axe, but they're very good underground as well. And he gets trapped in a rock fall. And he can hear the goblins saying, mm, there's a human, we're going to eat him, we're going to eat him, we're going to cut him up and eat him. And so he's a little bit scared, as you would be if a goblin was after you. Uh, but he's there and his rescue is not going so well. He's trapped and so frantically he tries to clear this bit of rubble. That doesn't go anywhere. He digs over here. That doesn't go anywhere. And so he's anxious and he's fretting and he's stressing and he's a hive of useless activity. And then he remembers. Before he entered into the mountain, he met Irene's grandmother, who is some sort of wizardy fairy godmother thing. And she gave Curdie a ring and said, put this on your finger. If you get lost, you take off the ring and you'll feel an invisible string. And if you follow that invisible string, it will always lead you back to me. Just so you know. So there's Curdie. He's frantic. He's stressed. He's like, what do I do? What do I do? And then he thinks, oh yes, the ring. Wonder if it'll work. So he takes off the ring and he feels a little string invisibly and once he's got hold of it it's all right he can put the ring back on and he starts following this string and he has to dig a little bit and he's a bit concerned at first because the string takes him under the mountain further in but actually he realizes no this must be right this is very wonderful and at that moment he's resting in the promise of the grandmother he's not out he's not escaped he's still on a journey but he's trusting. and He's no longer stressed. No longer relentless activity trying to save himself. He just trusts that the grandmother will save him. And he finds Irene and they go out and they go back. And eventually there they are in Grandmama's uh, tower in the castle. And they're rescued. It's a lovely story. And then there's a second one which is even better. But we um, <laughs> leave that alone. Okay. God says... Trust in my promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, when you do that, you're still on the journey. But you know where you're going. You know you're going home. And you don't have to frantically worry about everything. I mean, life is chaotic. You may go a bit more into the mountain. You might be a little bit nervous that you'll bump into a goblin, but uh, metaphorically. But, uh, but you know you're on your way home. So you rest in the promise of God even as you're on the way to the eternal rest of heaven. You see that? You enter rest now by faith. So question, what will you do with the word of God's promise? Will you trust it? Which means you have to walk with him. You've got to walk. Will you trust the word of promise? Will you combine it with faith, which is what these people failed to do? Will you combine it with faith, trust, personally, and that is rest in a promise that liberates now from self-reliance and you know you'll go home. Okay, There's the first, verses two to three. You enter rest now by faith. We're not there, but you know you're safe. Second, uh, more briefly, this is a fairly dense section, but second, we will Sabbath then like God. What on earth does that mean? Uh, we'll Sabbath then like God. Let's pick it up at verse three uh, B. God said, I declared in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Okay. So God there is showing that even though the people, as they heard, Psalm 95, were in the promised land, there was still something more fundamental to come for them. Glory. Heaven. Explanation. Verse 4. 4, because... Somewhere God has spoken about the seventh day in these words: "On the seventh day, God rested from all His work." In other words, there's something more profound than just entering the promised land of Canaan. There is a godlike rest that is waiting people in the future. Again, not that God was a workman who needed to have a cup of tea after half an hour's work and say, "Well, it's tougher than I thought, Gov." Making the world. Now, in a far more profound sense, when God rests, is because He's satisfied. He's content. He's achieved all that he needs to. And that seventh day is open for you and for me. You get a halfway conclusion in verse 6. Look, so it's, it's still possible to enter the rest. And those who back then in, uh, in Canaan, excuse me, uh, those who uh, back then in, in the wilderness had the gospel preached to them, they didn't go into the promised land of Canaan because of their disobedience. Okay. Verse 7. There's still that option for you today. You can still enter. That's still open to you, verse 7. Verse 8 Joshua took the people into the promised land, but there was still another day later that God spoke about. Full conclusion, verses 9 and 10. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. New word, verse 9 there is a Sabbath rest. New word, not from, in the passage, that awaits us in the future. That is the time when just as, verse 10, God rested, we will rest. In other words, just as God ceased from his labors and was satisfied, there'll be a day in the future where we cease from our labors, are satisfied because we're in heaven, praising him around the throne of Jesus Christ. That's what awaits us, awaits us in the future. Okay. So the writer wants to be very clear with us. When you look at the Christian life, there's experience now and there's expectation to come. Okay. But where, does you, where do you expect most of the blessing to be? The experience now of rest, it's good. You trust God. But it's still a fallen world. You still have days off sick in bed. It's It's sometimes not so great. The expectation is you'll be in Sabbath rest. Perfect glory. That's to come. Okay? So two things. You may enter rest now by faith. We will Sabbath rest then like God, verses four to 10. But last, it's better to be naked now than uncovered then. There's a warning here and an encouragement, just so we're clear. Let me read verse 11. Here's the conclusion of his argument so far. Therefore, Let us make every effort to enter that rest, get to heaven. Let's make every effort to make sure we get to heaven. Let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Okay, tangent, important one, Uh, same as last week. Let us make every effort so that no one will fall. This is not an individual point. You see, let us... Collectively, whatever, 200 people here. Let us make every effort so that no one here falls. It's group activity. I don't know if you see it, but the the funny men's ministry picture that comes up of a soldier carrying another soldier, leave no man behind, is a good motto. Entirely biblical. The writer here says, let us as a group make sure that no one is left. That everyone makes it. We talked about this a lot last week, but uh, many wouldn't have been here. Can I just encourage you again? You have to belong to a church and a small group within a church to live the Christian life. You've got to do that. You can't say, I attend church X in the morning and church Y in the afternoon and church Z at night, if you were so keen. You can't do... You've got, well, you can do those things. You can attend, but you have to belong somewhere. You have to be committed to a group of people somewhere who will hold you to account, who will encourage you. Who will you encourage, and who will encourage you? You've got to have an answer to that question. Coming to church on a Sunday, brilliant. You've got to be part of a small group as well, where people notice if you're not here. Okay, It's a group activity. Let us... Make sure that no one falls behind. It's a bit of a tangent tonight, but it comes up. It was last week's sermon, really. Now, again, uh, the comparison with the Israelites in the wilderness is important here. So, verse 11, let us make sure, so we don't follow their example of disobedience. What was the disobedience of the Israelites in the desert? Well, again, look across. Chapter 4, verse 2. They had the gospel preached, but the message, literally, the word they heard, they didn't combine with faith. What was the problem with the Israelites wandering in the wilderness? God made promises in his word and they didn't believe them. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Or to put it more simply, what he's saying is, believe the word of God. Verse 11. Make every effort to get to glory. Don't be like those people back then who did not believe God's word. Trust it. Trust it. For, because, verse 12, 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Wow. That's quite a list. The word of God there is personified. Living, active. Judges, thoughts attitudes. The judge there is a neutral word. Uh, it's not a pejorative word. A bit like judge in the sense of uh, The Great Bake Off. I don't watch The Great Bake Off. I have never seen The Great Bake Off in my life. If you love it, good for you. The rest of my family loves The Great Bake Off, and when I'm here on a Sunday night, they're all on the sofa watching The Great Bake Off, and that is great. I don't. It doesn't work as TV for me, but I love the fruit of their enthusiasm which gets produced. Okay. <laughs> But a judge in something like The Great Bake Off doesn't come along with a big long wig and says, you know, well, I'm here to find everyone guilty. They come along and say, what's it taste like? Is it good? Mm, Very good. What a wonderful bun you've made. (laughs) Or they may come along and say, I think they're quite polite on it, aren't they? They might, Mary Berry, she's very polite. Mm, Not altogether there, is it? Or something like, you know. Whereas everyone else just go, that's horrible. Uh, but a judge in that sense come along and assesses. Is it good or is it bad? The word of God is a judge that comes along and assesses our lives. There's, verse 12 is very striking, the parallels there, isn't it? What is this word of God like? Well, it's personified as a person. But so precise, it can separate soul, spirit, joints, Marrow. In other words, there's no mistake made here. There's absolute precision. The word of God will judge your life and mine. Perfectly. And verse 13, the point is, well, nothing gets hidden. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. At the end of history, the word of God assesses our life. Have we believed in Jesus, really, or not? But the point here in this text is you can either wait for that verdict then or you can have it now. Because even here and now, the word of God will tell us where we stand before him. It will reveal the condition of our hearts here and now so that we can do something about them. So we're told that what does it do? Well, verse 13, Well, the word of God uncovers everything and lays it bare before the Lord. Very striking. Uncovered. Other translations will have it as stripped naked. The word of God will strip us naked. I mean, that's the opposite of rest, isn't it? To be stripped naked publicly is a horrible idea. You know, it's just a terrible idea. But what, what's the sense? It's, everything is revealed. All our blemishes, all our flaws. Uh, this morning at breakfast time, you know, it was a little bit of frisson of excitement uh, getting out of the house to church on a Sunday morning. I've always worked for too long. Everyone else is, you know, it's always a bit of uh, chaos at breakfast time. And at breakfast time, I was eating Weedabix and tidying up one high chair. And then my son went out of the kitchen. I didn't really notice. So I turned around and walked straight into the kitchen door. <laughs> Quite hard. Uh yeah, thanks for your sympathy. Um it, I mean, it was it was it was hard enough to knock me to the floor. It, it was a real of bush. Oh. And uh I said, oh okay, fine. Anyway, off we go. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine. Teeth, everyone in the bathroom, uh teeth, everyone's cleaning their teeth. And uh, my wife doing one or two bits of uh, makeup, she doesn't need them obviously, but one or two bits of uh makeup <laughs> being done. And she said, Have you looked in the mirror? You've got a massive, great, wet, red welt on your head. And then she started laughing. <laughs> and said, you look like Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, his birthmark there. She said, you, you can't stand up in front of church and preach. Everyone will just laugh at you. I said, oh, it's fine. Said, no, no, come here. So she came and put on this magic stuff. Concealer, is that, is that what it's called? <laughs> And uh, on it went and slapped on. And to be fair, of course, it looked much better. But in my head, I had Hebrews 4. The word of God uncovers, strips naked, reveals all blemishes. So I said, no, I can't. I can't do it. I just, I, In fact, this might help me this evening. I might have an illustration out of this. So I um, <laughs> got a flannel. I know that's not the right tool. Got a flannel and, and rubbed it all off. And uh, yeah, came to church this morning looking like Mikhail Gorbachev. And most people, not all, were too polite to comment. But one or two said You look yes, thank you very much. <laughs> but it's that sense the word of God strips away the layers we use to cover us up and reveals what we're really like. I don't get it, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, some women will get their sponges and take off all the makeup. Everything is revealed. And disclosed. But how much more fundamentally odd would it be if our superficial niceness is just wiped away and we're exposed? And the word of God does that. Now why would we want it to? Why would we want the word of God to do something like that? Because sin is deceptive. And we need God's word to wipe away Sin, so we see what we're truly like. So we saw this, um, if you remember last time, uh, very strikingly, uh, just above, the um, uh, verse 13 of chapter 3. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So we need one another to reveal the deception of sin. But more than that, we need the word of God to reveal what we're truly like. Because sin will come along and say to us silly things that we'll believe. We think, no, we have to have this fig leaf. We have to have this protection. So sin will come along and say to us, you'll be bankrupt if you don't cheat on your tax return. And we think, yeah, I need to cover myself up. Or sin will come along and say to us, you must be ugly if you don't randomly snog someone in your first month at university. Yeah, yeah, I need to do that, I need to do that, just otherwise I'll feel insecure. I need that fig leaf to cover me up. Or sin will come along and say to us, you've got to go out and get hammered with that group of people or they won't like you. Or sin will come along and say to us, you'll be lonely if you don't sleep with him. You'll be lonely if you don't sleep with that person who's not your husband and you shouldn't do. You'll be lonely if you don't. And we start to believe these things, and we justify them to ourselves, and we think, oh, look, it's not too bad, just a random snob, it's not too bad going out a few times and getting drunk, it's not too bad sleeping with him or her, I do feel better. And the word of God comes along and just wipes it all away and says, don't be an idiot. Will you not be an idiot? Can you not see the truth? Can you not see that you, when you're doing those things, you're setting yourself on a path of disobedience and you're not trusting the word of God? And that path ends up in a terrible place. Let it uncover you now. That's the choice we're given here. The word of God, it removes the deception of sin so that we can see the truth. Without the word of God exposing us, stripping us naked, laying us bare, oh, there's a danger. We just get lost along the way. We just get lost along the way. Sin deceives us. We think, yeah, we're fine. Doesn't matter if I don't go to church. Doesn't matter if I'm not accountable to anyone. Doesn't matter if I sort of pretend, tell my parents I go to church and really I go about once a term. Doesn't, those things don't matter. Any need the word of God to come and wipe that away and say, that's not true. It really matters to you. So verse 11, when the writer says, make every effort, he's saying, let the word of God expose your sin now so that you repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Question, will you let the word of God expose you? Will you let the word of God do that now? Because when you do, you see your sin, you repent of it, you trust in Jesus Christ. And that keeps you going along the way. Let me read you this, then I'm done. I bumped into someone last month who uh, used to live in London, and uh, for three years came here to church while she lived in London, and then moved away. Uh, lives had to move away for work. He lives in another city now. But I happened to bump into her. Uh, it was very nice and catch up. I don't know how we used. It super, super. And then a few days later, she sent me an email. It's not long, but let me read it to you. Hi Matt, seeing you was uh, great fun, but also a challenge to me to reflect upon the time I'd spent in London. Hearing the preaching of God's word each week at a time of my life that I needed it so much. I'd been battling sexual sin. I was in an unhealthy relationship at the time. And it took me a long time to reach out for accountability or help. I just lived in my denial, guilt and shame. Many things said in Sunday sermons rang in my ears during the week. Slowly, through the truth of God's word... My heart was changed. I heard words of rebuke as joyful music, as hope and God's love for me. It turned me away from guilt and shame and turned me into forgiveness and a new life. The thought of uh, uh, sex outside marriage and that unhealthy relationship is now so unappealing, horrid to me, in a way I never would have thought I could feel. God's word changes everything from the inside out. nor the temptation is gone, but it has so, so much less power when you see where your true identity is found. I am so amazed by God's love and grace and provision. He truly never lets us go, no matter how far we ourselves try to run from him. And oh, how I ran. Thank you again, loving Christ. Dot, dot, dot. And many would say the same. I was doing something daft. Not wildly daft necessarily, but I was on an unhealthy and unhealthy pattern. And the word of God slapped me around the face, uncovered me, and I realized how foolish that was and how I needed to live for Jesus Christ. And God's eternal rest is open. you just got to obey him. And what do you do when your guilt is revealed? The word of God reveals how Badly, you've been messing up, etc. Last words. Verse 14. Everything's laid bare before the living God. Verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now we'll look at that properly next week. But the Word of God reveals your mistakes, your sin. Don't despair. Look up. See Jesus Christ, the perfect one who died as a substitute for you, who was stripped naked but was found to be perfect, perfectly righteous, and trust in Him again. What will you do with the promises of God? Trust them. Trust them. Let's pray together. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but make every effort to enter that rest. Our Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, and we continue to pray on, as that email writer put it, that during the week, your word would be living and active in the power of your spirit to change our thinking, to change our affections, so that the sin that at this moment in time perhaps is very appealing becomes abhorrent to us. And the, the Lord Jesus Christ, who seems perhaps weak and distant, becomes near and dear and wonderful to us. Please, would your word be at work in our lives. So we trust your promises so we obey you, so we keep walking all the way to heaven, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.